Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger. Section 16, Chapter 9a, Estimate of the Situation, Part 1. In physical warfare, the inherent instability of every situation is concealed by the apparent definiteness of the operation. Panic, revolt, or dissolution of regiments is not normally figured into the situation. The assumption is made, and for professional military purposes must be made, that all identical units are of equal quality unless proved otherwise, that all men in a unit will respond with psychological uniformity unless they are reported out physically by medical reports, that the unit will be capable of doing tomorrow what it did yesterday. The terrain comes in as a constant factor, and even such variables as weather can be calculated in terms of a predictable risk. Nevertheless, every experienced soldier knows that things do not always work out the way they should, that unexplained or unforeseen factors sooner or later complicate or frustrate the best plans, and that warfare is a huge gamble with a superficial but very necessary coding of exactitude. In psychological warfare, these considerations apply even more sharply. Combat at least has terrain, order of battle, logistics, estimated capabilities, and other concrete factors with which to figure. There is a known degree of difference between one enemy division and five enemy divisions. There is the possibility of computing the time with which the enemy will need to fulfill this capability or that, and the equally good possibility of computing time on our side for countermeasures. Even in such very long-range operations as strategic bombing, economic factors can be figured out to give the operation at least the coloration of precision. With propaganda, none of this is possible. The propagandist never knows the terrain because his terrain is the enemy mind in its entirety, a factor beyond the understanding of any man. The enemy can have strongholds of faith to be shaken, but the propagandist can never say, this factor is finished, therefore we proceed to the next. There is neither victory nor defeat, only the endless seesaw of probable accomplishments or probable blunders. The honest psychological warfare operative will admit that he does not know where he is at any given moment, how far from his start, how near to his goal. Even with surrender of the enemy, propaganda cannot be judged to have met with complete failure or complete success, because propaganda is an interminable stream going on into international affairs and carrying over to the next war. Psychological warfare can be given apparent certainty only by the creation of assumptions on the part of the planner. The assumptions will not stand up if questioned by a clever philosopher any more than did the basic assumptions of the German general staff when questioned by sardonic Trotsky at Brest-Litovsk. Nevertheless, the assumptions can work for planning purposes. Definiteness of goal. The first assumption to make is this. Goals can be sought with some hope of success. The propaganda planner uses the intelligence available to him. He consults with knowledgeable persons. He defines, one, the specific kinds of demoralization and discord he wishes to create. Two, the particular enemy audiences in which he wishes to create them. Three, the types of argument he proposes to use. And four, the media through which he intends to project his propaganda. He assumes that the kind of discord, depression, or surrender which he seeks will hasten the end of the war. In so doing, he is on ground only a little less sure than that of the strategic bombing planner, who also seeks results indirectly. For field operations, the goal of the propagandist is to sap the resistance of enemy troops. If the troops are moving forward and are not likely to be in a mood to surrender, then other goals, such as conflict between officers and men, encouraging desertion, 
informing enemy troops of bad news elsewhere in the war, or morale depression may be sought. In each case, the propaganda must be aimed at a goal, and a goal is as essential to the operation of psychological warfare as is definition of a target for artillery or bombing. No one ever accomplishes anything shooting somewhere or other. No one propagandizes successfully unless he seeks the attainment of a state of mind or series of actions which may actually happen. Most times, it is thus impossible to aim at the total surrender of the enemy armies or state. One can aim for concrete operational purposes only at specific enemy troubles or effects. For the field, troop surrenders. For the home front, interference with the enemy war effort. These are about as general as goals can be made. They can be made very specific, indeed. A situation reported by intelligence may provide an almost perfect opening for psychological warfare. If the enemy press reports that 23 embezzlers have been detected in food supply and have been shot, it is a perfect opening for the black propaganda goal to conduce the enemy mistrust of food control, to increase food spoilage, to lower efficiency of enemy food consumption through enhancing misuse of food supply. Some of the means might be these. An alleged enemy leaflet could be prepared, warning quartermasters to destroy canned foods that have lost labels. Another leaflet describing diseases that come from partially spoiled food. An enemy allegation, from your side, or better, from neutral territory, that the political chiefs of the enemy country are the biggest food embezzlers of all. Getting a black radio and rumor campaign underway, describing the 783 people who died last month as a result of eating musty food, even though your own doctors say the mustiness may not interfere with the wholesomeness of that particular food. Describing common diseases that actually occur in the enemy country, such as arthritis, stomach ulcers, sinus headaches, or infectious jaundice, and blaming them all on the foods the enemy government distributes to the enemy people. On white radio, features could be put on describing the unhappy plight of your own side, where people may get their rashers of bacon for breakfast only every other day, and where nobody can have more than three eggs at a time. Point out that the government is worried that food prices have risen 5.3%, without mentioning at that time the fact that enemy prices have gone up 45% or more. The definite goal gives the propaganda boys something to work on. Propaganda to the allies or satellites of the enemy can point out that the enemy government is apt to dump the spoiled food onto the foreign market, that food spoiling in territory of the big enemy will make him requisition more food from his little allies, and so forth. When the topic has been worked for a while, stop. Keep it up only if actual news from the enemy country shows that they are having enough real trouble with food to make your improvements on the fact thoroughly credible. Propaganda cannot function in a vacuum framed by moral generalities. The goal must be defined in light of the authentic news or intelligence. The operation can be sustained only if there is enough factual reality behind it to make the propaganda fit the case known or credited by the majority of the listeners, counted one by one. Since no trouble-free wartime country has been known to exist, the goal should be tailored to the troubles of the particular enemy, and should aim at increasing real difficulties, building up pre-existing doubts, stimulating genuine internal hostilities. Propaganda which invents pure novelty gets nowhere. The Russians did not hesitate to appeal to Bismarck in order to show the professional German soldiers what a rotter Hitler was and how stupid the Nazi strategy. 
But if Bismarck had actually said nothing on the subject of the army in general, or an eastern war in particular, they would have been wise to leave him alone. If the Japanese had tried to make the ex-Confederate states secede all over again, they would not have gotten anywhere because they would not have started with a real grievance. But if they had alleged that the Negro units were used for stevedoring because whites regarded Negroes as unworthy of carrying weapons, they might have hit on a real grievance. The goal must be deeply bedded in reality. The Propaganda Man It has been pointed out that the true terrain of psychological warfare, the private thoughts of the enemy people, one by one, is known only to God. There is, however, a way of finding approximate terrain. That consists of setting up a hypothetical enemy listener or reader and then trying to figure things out from his angle. The first thing to do with a hypothetical man is to make him fit the kind of person who does get propaganda. In dealing with China, for example, it would be no use to take a statistically true Chinese who lived on a farm 1.3 acres in size, went to a town 5.8 times a year, had 3.6 children, and never read newspapers. The man to be set up would be the reachable man, the city, town, or village dweller, who had an income 2.1 times greater than that of the average in his country, who owned 1.7 long coats, and who shared one newspaper with 6.8 neighbors. Take this lowest common denominator of a man who can be reached by enemy propaganda and by yours. Name him the Propaganda Man. Realistically speaking, modal and not arithmetical classes should be set up. Make up the pre-war life of the Propaganda Man. Use your regional experts as informants. What kind of things did he like? What prejudices was he apt to have? What kind of gossip did he receive and pass along? What kind of words disgusted him? What kind of patriotic appeal made him do things? What did he think of your country before the war? What things did he dislike you and your people for? What myths did he believe about America? That all Americans drove sports convertibles while drinking liquor? That all had blonde sweethearts? That all exchanged gunfire periodically? Of what American things did he think well? Food, shoes, autos, personal freedom, others? What is he apt to be thinking now? To this, add what the enemy propaganda is trying to do to its propaganda man. That is, size up the domestic propaganda of the enemy in terms of the concrete individuals at whom it is aimed. This may reveal the enemy's vital necessities and his concealed weaknesses. What are the leaders trying to do? Are they trying to make the propaganda man get to work on time? Are they trying to make him give up holidays willingly? Are they trying to make him think that your side will kill him if you win? Are they trying to keep him from being worried about his city going up in an incandescent haze? Are they trying to make him believe that the concrete shelters are good? Why are they harping on the safety of the shelters? Has the propaganda man been muttering back about the flimsiness of the shelters? Does he want to be evacuated from target cities? Are the police being praised for their fairness and speed in issuing leave-the-city permits? Are legal evacuees being treated as scum and traitors and cowards? Then go after the propaganda man yourself. He is your friend. You are his friend. The only enemy is the enemy leader, or generals, or emperor, or capitalists, or they. How is the propaganda man going to hear from you? Leaflets? Shortwave? And if so, why is he listening to the enemy in the first place? Standard wave? Speaker planes? Rumors? 
Get things to him that you know he will repeat, things which will interest him. Make up a list of the things he worries about each month, a list of the things which the enemy propaganda is trying to do to him currently, a list of the things your propaganda is trying to do. Do the three lists fit? Would they work on an actual living, breathing, thinking human being? With the prejudices, frailty, nobility, greed, lubricity, and other motives of the ordinary human being? If your list fits his real life, if your list spoils the enemy propaganda list, if your list builds up a psychological effect of confusion, gloom, willingness to surrender, which accumulates month after month, the terrain is favorable. It is in your propaganda man's head. There are no maps of the human mind, but in certain special cases, sociology and psychology can provide leads which even the most acute, untrained observation would otherwise overlook. During World War II, for example, Mr. Geoffrey Gorer, a British anthropologist, was able to provide character analyses of the Japanese that stood up under the rigorous analysis of experts long resident in Japan. Gorer took as base data the experience of the Japanese infant in the first 40-odd months of life. How was the baby given toilet training? How was it weaned? How was it disciplined into the family life? How did the small child learn what it was? Gora found that Japanese domestic life started the child out with a mixture of uncertainty and defiance, that the infant soon learned he was in a definite position in the human queue, where all above him had to be respected on the threat of immediate and condign reprisal, while all below him could be mistreated almost with impunity, that the Japanese had sad, dirty little private thoughts about himself to a degree unknown to ourselves or the Chinese that the Japanese was, in adult life, the inevitable fulfillment of what he had been made in infancy. Arrogant, timid, insanely brave, deferential, fearful of foreigners, and overtly cruel to them. Furthermore, the Japanese identified persons, nations, or institutions as female, peaceful, possessing enjoyments, subject to bullying, or as male, fierce, counter-aggressive, superordinate. The USA of Admiral Perry seemed male, that of Cordell Hull, female. These findings, applied to propaganda, gave British-American operations an audience, unlike the Japanese, whom missionaries, soldiers, diplomats, businessmen, and journalists had portrayed in such varied and inconsistent terms. This Japanese propaganda man, analyzed at a distance, since Gore had never been nearer Japan than Indochina, became a believable person. It was uncanny to see Japanese propaganda movies after reading the Gora analyses and to find the Japanese government propagandists, by hunch and instinct, appealing to the same propaganda man whom Gora, by bold but permissible extrapolations, had revealed to allied propaganda planners. The Attribution of Motive One of the least factual elements in human life is motive. Motive is hard to discern, even in one's own life and it is difficult, if not impossible, to prove. It must frequently be attributed. Motive is therefore easily interpreted. Falsification is almost impossible, because no matter how much probable motive is twisted, it still might fit the case. Motive is therefore excellent material for psychological warfare. Those propaganda veterans, the communists, have a formula for showing that the motive of every person opposed to them is unprogressive, illiberal, and greedy, even if the person himself does not know it. Their own motives are always pure. 
because they are objectively and historically correct, according to science, that is, according to the historical rigmaroles of Karl Marx. The formula is a poor science, but a superb propaganda weapon. War eases the motive-switching operation because the leaders and people on each side derive moral exhilaration from the common effort. Ostensibly, politicians become statesmen. All higher-ranking officers become strategists. Ordinary men become heroes, martyrs, adventurers. The lofty process of war is one which psychologists will not explain in our time. It transposes ordinary persons and events to a frame of reference in which individuals are less self-conscious and also less critical. Among European and American peoples, particularly, there arises the assumption that because of war, men should be brave and unselfish, women kind and chaste, yet alluring, officials self-sacrificing, and so on, even though the facts of the case in the particular country involved may be very much to the contrary. The cruel futility inherent in war is so plain to all civilized men that when war does come, men overcompensate for it. They set up illusions. This need not be taken as a criticism of war or of mankind. The world would be a more inspiring place in which to dwell if people generally lived up to the wartime standards they impose on themselves. That these standards are felt to be real is attested by the distinct drop of the suicide rate in wartime and the increase in suicide, murder, and crimes of delinquency after every war. That the change of rule is largely illusory is attested by the fact that no nation appears to have undergone permanent sociological change as a result of improvement during war. Many wartime changes carry on, of course, but they rarely comprise, by the standards of the people concerned, improvements. The upswing is genuine when it occurs, but it is rarely permanent, and it seldom affects all levels of the entire population with the same degree of exhilaration. The propagandist thus has an ideal situation. In the enemy country, everyone is trying to be more noble, more unselfish, more hardworking. Everyone applies a higher standard of ethics and performance than in peacetime. Businessmen are not supposed to make too much money. Politicians are supposed to work around the clock. Officials are supposed to cooperate. Housewives to save. Children to scavenge. And so on. Yet a certain percentage of the enemy population is not taken into this. Sometimes minorities feel themselves emotionally excluded. At other times, private temperamental differences make some persons skeptic, while others remain believers. The ground is ready for rumor, for tearing down inflated personages, for breaking the illusion by the simple process of attributing normally selfish motives in wartime. It is easier to attribute bad motives to civilian leaders than to military. The ceremonialized discipline of modern warfare makes the military figure a little mysterious. His normal peacetime obscurity shielded him and his family from exposure, cheap publicity, gossip. The civilian leader does not have this protection. The very process of becoming prominent has involved his seeking publicity, for the one part, and his pretense of avoiding it, for the other. Furthermore, the man who serves his nation serves himself. It is not possible for a man to lead a large country without benefiting himself, since the act of leadership is itself intensely pleasurable. Also, prominence possesses the characteristic of vice. Even when it loses its value for positive enjoyment, it retains withdrawal pains. The once prominent individual hates to leave prominence, though he may be genuinely weary of it. He is willing to be tired of the country, 
but not willing for the country to be tired of him. In wartime, old leaders remain and new ones come in. Fame and obscurity shift with even greater rapidity than before. The personality politics condition of the country is highly mobile. Personalities are tense with interpersonal conflict. Then comes the propagandist. First, he attributes normal human motives to the leaders who so obviously possess them. In this job, he is doing what the famous little boy in the Hans Christian Andersen story did when he said of the emperor, Mama, he hasn't any clothes on. The propagandist need only say what everyone knows, that this man is notoriously fond of money, that another one has been a poor sportsman, that a third has betrayed some old friends, that a fourth has sought power in a selfish, vindictive way. The response which the propaganda seeks is a simple, yeah, that's so. The next step in propaganda is to show that these persons do not measure up to the tragic, heroic, historic roles war has imposed on them. That too is not difficult, especially if the war is not going decisively one way or the other. Defeat or victory serves equally well to make leaders into heroes. Churchill and MacArthur were never more splendid than when they were whipped, the one after Dunkirk, the other after Bataan. The final approach is the total discrediting of leaders. The internal politics of the country have been bitter enough. Some of the leaders may even come over voluntarily to the enemy. Quisling in Norway, Wang in China, Doriot and Laval in France, Glasshoff in the USSR, Laurel from the Philippines. Such men all possessed a certain amount of standing in their own countries, but through capture, impatience, or seduction, decided to continue their careers with enemy backing. The propagandists can now pretend to be tolerant. It is he who believes in peace, in reconciliation, in easygoing live-and-let-live attitudes. He describes his protégés, the Quislings, in warm, complimentary terms. He lightens the tenor of his attack on the non-Quisling enemy leaders. He takes the attitude that war continues because of private stupidity, vengefulness, greed, unreasonableness on the other. For his part, he is willing to let the politicians, both Quisling and Patriot, settle it between themselves. Let them form a coalition government. Personal smearing is effective. If the war situation runs in the enemy's favor, the easing of the enemy position permits the population the privilege of backbiting, and even within the leadership group, some leaders may feel more free to destroy the positions or reputations of the others. The impossible and foolishly heroic stances which the leaders have taken in time of strain now make most of them look a little silly. Conversely, in a downgrade situation, the leaders may gain stature in the first tragic weeks of defeat, but soon the ignobility of defeat sweeps over them all. The propagandist need only be a good reporter, and the leaders of the defeated country will provide him with good propaganda material. In estimating the propaganda situation, the vulnerability of the leaders to personal attack is one of the major elements. Properly handled, it can be of real value. In the American Revolution, the personal character of George Washington was a very substantial asset. A very rich man, he could scarcely be accused of a gutter revolution. A slave owner, he could not be accused of wanting to overthrow the social order. An experienced soldier, he could not be attacked as a military amateur. A man of patience, correct manners, and genuine modesty, he was not easily described as a bloody empire builder, an immoral sycophant, or a power-drunk madman. British propaganda accordingly went after the Continental Congress, of which there was a great deal to be said. On the other side, 
The Americans had duck soup when it came to George III and most of his cabinet, personalities which included boars, fuddy-duddies, too little and too laters, and conspicuous nincompoops. End of section 16